Hello, and welcome to Sobercast. We provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in a podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting Sobercast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar two into the virtual basket. Also, if you're a member of NA or have friends that are, please tell them about our other podcast, NAPOD. NAPOD features NA speakers and workshops in the same format as Sobercast. We upload a new speaker every day, and it's easy to subscribe by searching for NAPOD, N-A-P-O-D, all one word, on any podcast player app, or go to NAPOD.XYZ if you'd like to listen online. Hope you enjoy the podcast and have a great day. and I am an alcoholic. My name is Joanna. And I'm recovering from Western civilization, too. (laughs) I say that because, uh, you know, addict-alcoholic just really narrows it down to a very minute form. And, uh, you know, if you stay around this program long enough, you realize that we're suffering from a lot more than just, um, you know, alcoholism and addiction. Uh, there's some underlying uh, spiritual maladies that we can name. And, you know, uh, you know, when I look at all the variations thereof of my sickness, you know, it just goes on and on and on. So I'm glad to be here tonight. And it's good to be in Saturday Night Live because this is a special fellowship to me. This is my home group. This was my home group when I got clean and sober. And uh, I'm very, very proud to be a member of Saturday Night Live, even though, I moved away almost four years ago today to Carson City, Nevada. I live up there in the High Sierra now. It's peaceful, serene, you know, not a lot of goddamn traffic and humming. There's no hums, you know. It's still, wow, you know. And, uh, you know, I was led there, and I'm glad I was led there. Uh, They have a wonderful fellowship in Carson City, Nevada, and uh, I participate there. They have Alano Club there that has all of the meetings together. You know, you have AA, you have Narcotics Anonymous, you have Gamblers, not Gamblers Anonymous, big up there. <laughs> Gamblers Anonymous, you have uh, uh, Al-Anon, you have uh, uh, um, uh, CODA, you know. They're all right there in the same building, so I can go in and out of any door I want to, you know. Because, see, I qualify for all of these programs. You know, I qualify. I came in the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous in 1983. But I'm also a member of Narcotics Anonymous, uh, Cocaine's Anonymous, Marijuana's Anonymous, uh, CODA, Al-Anon, and ACA. I haven't been to Overeaters Anonymous yet, but I might get there, you know. Um, uh, you know, but uh, the, the truth is, is that I learned that I am suffering from a spiritual malady, an underlying spiritual malady. And it took me many years to really know what that problem was, but I know it today and I'm grateful. You know, back in 1982, I was uh, having a little, I was under some stress. (laughs) I was having some problems. Uh, You know, I had been shooting heroin and cocaine for about three, four years, uh, practically on a daily basis, especially the last year. I used to like using them speed balls, you know, if anybody knows what that is. And I was drinking a little bit, too. I uh, get up in the morning, and I always pour, you know, I'm a lady, so I pour Kahlua and coffee, you know, have one of them uh, nice Kahlua drinks and coffee. And then as the day proceeded, I would start 
drinking that bourbon because I'm a whiskey drinker. I like whiskey, and if I get really out of my mind, I'll, I'll ask for the wild turkey. Bartenders hated when I did that, but I would say, bring me some wild turkey. I've had it, you know. And uh, make it straight up. Don't put any ice in it, you know, and uh, that kind of thing. So I'm a pretty heavy user in my life, and uh, the reason that I used to use whatever I could get my hands on is because I liked what they what it did for me. Um, and so I had been using and drinking for quite some time, since 1979. I had started with a little heroin and a, a couple of little drinky poos because I was working with the realtors uh, here in San Jose. And I got my realtor's license in 78, and uh, one day I went to a little um, luncheon, and the realtor said, uh, oh, would anybody like a cocktail? You know, they used to do these uh, every every month. Our broker would take us out for a little luncheon and ask us if we'd like a little cocktail. And I had stayed away from alcohol for a while because it seemed like every time I would drink, I didn't want to do anything else but drink, you know. And I'd never get any work done, so I just quit using the alcohol for a while. And uh, so this this particular day, I thought, well, you know, I, I have my realtor's license now. I'll, I'll go ahead and have a cocktail with the rest of these people, you know. And uh, so I had a cocktail, and then I, I noticed that I wanted another cocktail, and then I wanted another cocktail. I'm pretty sure I didn't want to go back to the office. I wanted to just call up on the phone, tell all my clients, forget it, let's get together tomorrow. Um, after a while, I started making money in real estate. Yeah, that was real nice. And uh, so I got to thinking about... You know, you can't, I, I didn't want to drink every day because I wouldn't be productive when I drank. So, um, you know, I, I got to thinking about heroin because, you know, see, I like heroin. And, uh, you know, it's always, it's always really a mellow drug to me. And it doesn't smell. Nobody knows you're using it. And, uh, I got to thinking about heroin. And I had some friends of mine still out on the streets that I knew I could just make a call to. And I was making this real good money. So I thought, you know what, I'll just go ahead and buy me a nice big gram of heroin and I'll stick it in my closet and just use it on the weekends, you know, just to relax once in a while, you know. And um, <clears throat> that's all she wrote, you know. <laughs> and so I proceeded to do this for a number of years and, uh, you know, about 1981, something like that, the real estate market went kaput. And I didn't have a job anymore because the Republicans got in office. That's all I'll say about them tonight. Thank you. Um, they got into office and everything started going like this. And I wasn't selling any real estate and I couldn't refinance my house. And I ended up in foreclosure, ended up in bankruptcy, ended up a mess. And on top of using and drinking, my life wasn't too pretty. My kids had run away from home. I had four children at the time. Three of them were at my mom and dad's in Carson City. And this little one, this little little scallywhack I had, she was about four years old at the time. She's sitting right there in the front row. She was hanging on to my leg with, with, with all of her might and didn't know where the bus went. And uh, my, my, my life was in shambles. You know, my house looked like, you know, I, it was so bad. Uh, that, uh, and I was so strung out and so sick that, uh, I was moving furniture out of my house. I had moving signs, uh, all over, moving sale signs all over the neighborhood. You know, moving sale. And I'd move pieces of furniture out in my driveway. Someone would come along and, oh, this is a pretty, uh, dresser. How, you know, oh, yes, you know, give me the money and I go right to the connection. You know what I mean? Uh, cause that's how sick I was. And, uh, before I knew it, my mom and dad got wind of it and came down with a big truck and loaded up whatever was left and brought it to Carson and put it in storage. 
and I was left with a with a little TV set and a little mattress on the floor and Davina and me and her crazy father in and out. And uh, he said, uh, please, do not sell that television set. You know, it's all we got. And I said, God, what do you think? I'd stoop that low, you know. And I uh, promise I'd never do anything like that because when you do something like that, you know, you're really sick. You know, you're really a junkie then. You know, you're really. And uh, <clears throat> so as soon as he left one day, I called somebody. I already had it lined up, took the TV set, sold that too. Got 120, got a bag for it. It was great. Uh, <clears throat> that's how my life was in 1982. Um, I was so sick, and they were getting ready to sell my house in foreclosure. A girlfriend came by. They were going to put it on the trustee's block the next day, and a girlfriend came by and said, you need to file bankruptcy. I was so sick I couldn't get up. I was laying on the couch. It was in May of 19, I think it was April or May of 1982. And the connection was somewhere. I don't know where. I was drinking. But, you know, when you're using other drugs, you got to have those too. And uh, my girlfriend said, we got to get someone over here file bankruptcy. They did, and at least it gave me three months and 21 days with a house. And uh, I called my mother and dad in Carson City, and I said, I'm real sick. And they said, please come home. And I said, I'll be right there. Of course, it took me till October to get there. <laughs> uh, I lost my house in July, me and my little girl. I went over to an aunt's house here on Hamilton Avenue. I stayed a month, but I couldn't stop using. I tried two methadone detox programs. Uh, I finally was at least able to get over, uh, you know, having to use every day, but I was always shaky and stuff. And around October 1st, I picked up my Social Security check and went up uh, to my mom and dad's in Carson City, Nevada. I landed there about October 3rd, so this is kind of a celebration for me right now, this time, because it was a time that I ended up in Carson City. And I ended up on a couch in my mother's family room, and I said a prayer. And I talked to a higher power. I always knew there was a power greater than myself. And I said, you know what? I've tried everything I know that's humanly possible to make my life work, and I'm just a mess. I'm a failure. I'm a failure in every department of my life. I haven't been a good mother to my kids. I've tried, but I just can't make the grade. I've tried chasing money, property, prestige, sex security, people, places, and things. And I am worn out. I've tried to do everything people have told me to do to make my life okay in this world. I am worn out. I can't do it anymore. Don't want to do it anymore. If I had a million dollars at my feet right now, I'd say screw it, give it to somebody else because I didn't have any motivation to participate in this planet anymore. And I was sick. And I said, so you know what? I took a little inventory of my life about that time, kind of looked backwards. And I thought to myself, you know, I should have been dead by now. There was a lot of things I had done in my life that put me in some real weird positions. You know, I ran with very violent people at one time. I, you know, I used and drank in places that, you know, ladies shouldn't even be in, you know. And uh, I did a lot of things out there through my life. And, uh, and, I, and I came out with not even a scratch, hardly. Sick, but not a scratch. And I thought, you know what, I should have died. Many of my friends did die over the years in, in some of the places that we, in some of the things we did. And I wasn't dead, and I said, I don't know why I'm not dead. I should be. Had hepatitis four times. 
you know, went into a coma behind shooting methamphetamine, OD'd on heroin many times, you know, ended up in places I didn't even know I was under the influence of alcohol, you know. Uh, you know, ended up in jails and institution, did about three and a half years out of my life in uh, county and state institutions. You know, I mean, there, there was a lot of things that happened to me through, through that time. And I, I told the higher powers that I should have been dead by now, but I'm not. And I don't know why I'm not. But, you know, whatever the reason is, if there is a reason for me still being here alive like this, then, and there's a purpose to my life, then let's get on with it because I'm done. I'm resigning from life. I don't want any part of it. And that's it. And that was it. And that's the day I resigned. I resigned from this world as I know it. And I'm still resigned. <laughs> Cheers. <clears throat> and you know what? I'm glad I resigned because I've never had it so good. You know, uh, I resigned and um, I said, that's it. I was still drinking a little whiskey at the time. My father had some Percodans in his drawer. They, they were gone within a few days. You know, I'd take the edge off. But uh, I kept drinking whiskey. I had me a bottle of, see, uh, my father drinks B.O., you know, so I had a bottle of bourbon behind the coffee maker, making them Irish coffees every day, you know. And I would sit there, because I didn't know, I didn't know that I couldn't drink alcohol. You know, I thought it was okay. I had to calm my nerves somehow. And uh, I'd sit at my mother's piano, and I'd play the piano. My kids were all up there, and I, they just said, don't worry. I come from an Italian Catholic family. So, you know, they feel guilty if they don't take you in. And uh, so, uh, you know, they always come home. We'll feed you pasta, and we'll get you fat again, and you'll be okay, you know. And uh, <clears throat> so I stayed there. And uh, just kind of lived day by day, shaken and trembling and couldn't sleep. I was coming off of opiates. And if you've ever been on opiates, you know that you, it's hard to sleep at night. So if I was up for about a month, you know, like this, you know, and just feeling icky all the time and stuff. And I got a call right around November, December, right around the holidays from an attorney down here in San Jose that said, you know what, um, <clears throat> you need to come down here sometime after the holidays and get this bankruptcy thing sewed up. So I said, okay, I'll be down after the holidays. So right around January 1983, I came down here to San Jose, took off, came down here, and uh, my auntie lived right over here on Hamilton Avenue. I had an aunt lived right over here on Hamilton Avenue. Right down the street from Room 47 here uh, when Saturday night began. And... Um, uh, so, you know, I asked her if I could stay with her for a couple of weeks till I, till I got this business taken care of. And she said, do you have to? You know, I mean, I really would rather you didn't, you know. You know how our families get, you know. And uh, she was a nag anyway. She was always pissed about something. And uh, she said, I don't want your friends around here. I don't want you around here. But she had, she had put up with some of my shenanigans before. She was glad I was gone, you know. And she goes, oh, God, you know, but she was my mother's sister. And, you know, she, she'd be, feel guilty if she didn't take me in. So I said, I'll only be here for a couple of weeks. i got to take care of this stuff, business. You know, we have to take care of our business. I have to take care of this business, and then I'm going to be gone. You know, great, okay. But I don't want any of your friends here. I don't want anybody calling, blah, blah, blah. Well, one of my friends got wind that I was there. 
And this friend was named Sheila, and Sheila was was heard that I was in town. She wanted to get together with me because, see, Sheila was back in AA. And she, she got a hold of me, called me up, got the number, called me up and said, hey, I'm back in AA. I said, oh, good, because she, Sheila really needed AA. Uh, she was a mess, you know. She would get drunk and uh, pass out or black out and end up in some weird places. And I just knew Sheila needed AA. And uh, she couldn't maintain like I did. You know, um, so she she said, uh, but hey, I'd like to get together with you, you know. Let's go out for coffee sometime. And I said, yeah, that'd be great. Why don't you come pick me up? But she goes, well, look, I go to a meeting right down the street from your aunt's house. She goes, I go every day. She goes, and I'm going to be coming uh, to this meeting. She says, and I'm going to go ahead and uh, pick you up after my meeting tonight. It was a Monday night. Actually, when she called, it was February 1st, 1983. It was a Monday night. And she said, I'll come, I'll come by after the meeting. And I said, no, come by before the meeting. Take me to the meeting because my aunt's driving me crazy. She's just nagging and she won't shut her big fat mouth and I'm sick of it. I need a drink. I didn't have any money. You know, my nerves were on end. And she goes, okay, I'll come by before. Now, see, I didn't have any problem coming to AA meetings or NA meetings for that matter or any kind of meetings like this because I had been drug here many times in the past. First AA meeting I ever went to was in Elmwood, if anybody familiar with that resort out in Malpitas for women. Uh, little old ladies used to come in there and share their experience, strength, and hope, what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. And I used to go because I wanted cupcakes and cigarettes, you know. And uh, we'd knit Afghans in there. It was boring. So I would go, and uh, they'd tell me what it was like, what happened. And I'd look, and I'd go, boy, you were really fucked up, you know. <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad you straighten your life out, you know, and I wave goodbye to him and I'd be in the jailhouse, you know. And then uh, you know, a few years later I, I, I hit CRC down in Southern California and the NA people used to come in there. And uh then they started sharing their experience, strength and hope, and they said it might be a good idea if I come to a meeting when I got out of there. And I thought, Oh, you did you do this stuff out on the streets? You know, I thought you just did it in institutions, did, did these meetings, you know? No, you got to come. So in 1972, when I paroled out into the streets, a few of my friends were already in the program, and they, they were trying to get me here in 72. And I go to these meetings, listen to these dope fiends talk about what it was like. Have you ever tried to listen to a dope fiend or out, talk about what it was like when you don't even know what's wrong with you? You know, I thought I had to get out of an institution and get it together at that time. I had to become like a normal person that I had to get a job. I had to quit my little shenanigans. You know, like my family used to say, quit doing all this shit. You know, straighten up, fly right, get a job. You know, find a nice man, Italian preferably. Find a nice man, settle down, have some babies, stand at the stove, cook some pasta, you'll be okay. You know. I said, every time I try to do that, I get the man, I have a baby, I try to cook pasta, I have to drink and use because I can't stand it, you know. I have to drink and use just to stay there and do that, you know, uh, or kill myself, one of the two, you know. So, um, you know, I, 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 but in 1972, I thought, what do I want to sit around with a bunch of dolphins for, you know. And they're going on and on about how they used and this and that and the other. I know how to use, I know how to drink. You know, years ago, if you wanted to visit me, you have to come in a bathroom. I stayed in bathrooms for two, three days in a row, you know, sitting on the toilet, you know. Um, 
my kids running around the house wanting to know if there's anything. And I thought I was hiding something from them, you know. My two sons growing weed plants in the backyard, you know. I one of them uh, mothers that used to say, now look, I don't want you guys drinking any alcohol. That shit will really hurt you, man. I want you, if you're going to do anything, smoke this weed. And I show them how to roll a joint and give it to them, you know. You know, that's the kind of mother I was. And uh, so, you know, in 1972, uh, I didn't want to stay going to meetings because I just, and I remember someone saying, gee, if I drink or use again, I'm going to die. I said, gee, don't get so drastic with this shit, you know. Because I didn't understand about the disease of addiction or alcoholism. I really didn't understand it. You know, so I went back out there to become a normal person. Ha <laughs> ha. And uh, I chased money, property, and prestige for a while, and that's what, where, where it took me, you know. In 1982, it took me on my mother's couch saying a prayer, you know, and asking for help. You know, saying I'm done. You know, if there's a reason for me being here, let's do it. Well, Sheila shows up a few months later at my aunt's house, like I say, and she brings me to a group called Saturday Night Live, Room 47, Monday night, February 1st, 1983. I walked in the room, see, and I wasn't afraid to go to AA or NA or any meeting because I had already been to meetings. You know, a lot of my friends were coming to these meetings, you know. And so I come in, and, uh, you know, I really like Saturday Night Live. It was really a change from some of the old meetings I used to go to. They didn't have a lot of old fogies in here. There's a lot of young-looking, smelling, good-smelling men, you know, and my instincts kind of, you know, woke up a little bit. You know what I mean? I said, Jesus, you know, this is nice. AA has changed, really, you know. And uh, so I sat down and I stayed. And, uh, you know, we went to coffee right after that, and I saw my friend Jim Baird. Me and Jim Baird had been raised together in the same neighborhood. And I walked into this coffee shop after the meeting. He says, it's about time you got to this fellowship. Like he knew something about me I didn't, you know. And I said, wow, you know. So I come in there, and I, there, was this, there was this young man there at the time. We were all having coffee together. I thought he was kind of cute, you know. So he said, are you, are you and Sheila coming back to the meeting tomorrow night? I go, you damn right we are, aren't we, Sheila, you know. <laughs> and uh, I came back to the meeting. I always say, you know what, uh, I came back for a little piece of nookie, you know, and uh, I was granted a brand new life, you know. It don't matter how we get here, you know, because that nose is sharp, you know. It, it, it helped me survive all my life. So I came back here and I stayed. And one of the things that prompted me to stay is hearing about spiritual awakenings because, you see, all my life I've been a seeker. I've been a seeker, a spiritual seeker, all my life. I might have veered off the track, used and drank a little bit and all this, or a lot, should I say. But I was always a spiritual seeker. I was born in San Jose, California, to, uh, like I say, Italian Catholic parents. Okay, uh, I, uh, there were six generations in this valley, actually. My great-grandmother uh, settled in this valley uh, in, the, in the late 1800s. And so we were here a while. And I live right on Willow Street near First Street in downtown San Jose. And uh, I was raised in an Italian Catholic family, so I had to go to parochial school when I was a girl. And I, all I could tell you is, as I remember from early on in my life, I kind of looked around at the world and checked things out for a while, and I wanted to puke. Okay? It's like I had a hard time dealing with the world around me. I had a hard time because nothing really was acceptable to me. And... Uh, 
And so I would fight, and I would be defiant, and I'd say, no, I don't want to do that. And they'd say, you're going to do this, or we're going to beat the shit out of you, you know. And, uh, and uh, so, you know, I, don't, I didn't feel understood. I felt different, just like we all talk about we feel different. And I felt different, and I, I started going to parochial school, and that was, that was a real, now I look back, jeez. You know, I always say I'm a recovered Catholic, too, a recovered Christian, too. You know, I recover from all that stuff. I'm telling you, it's a lot to recover from. If you're recovering from Western civilization, you're recovering from a lot of shit. But, you know, Catholicism was one thing you've got to recover from, you know. I see, I see people going into Catholicism when they get to the program, and I wonder how they stay sober. I tell, um, I tell, I tell Father Tom Wesson all the time, you're a Jesuit priest. How could you stay sober being a Catholic, you know? He, he is. So, you know, it takes all kinds, I guess. It's okay. There's a higher power for everybody, you know. But for me, you know, being a Catholic, I, I had to go to Catholic school, and I noticed right off that, you know what, there wasn't any, there wasn't any women saying mass. You know, I used to watch this priest saying mass and lifting the chalice up, you know, and, and I wanted to do that. I said, I want to do that. How, do I, how can I do Well, girls can't do that. If you want to join the church, you have to become a nun. I said, well, what do you have to do to become a nun? Well, you have to shave your hair. You have to wear a black habit. And you can't have any sex or anything like that. I said, oh, no, I don't want to do that, you know. Uh, so where, where can I fit? I mean, I want to be, do some of these rituals they're doing. I said, oh, no, you can't do that. You're a girl. Oh, I see. Okay, so right off the bat, I started learning that it, it wasn't the same world for boys and girls, you know. And I felt more intelligent than half the boys around me anyway. So what's the problem here, you know? They used to say, oh, no, you can't do that. Your cousin can do it. He's a boy, but you can't, you know. So I started getting really upset about that. Also, I got, started getting upset with the fact that, you know, um, you know, there was hypocrisy all around me. You know, like they say, there was a lot of thou shalt not. But yet they were, they, they were doing what they told me I shouldn't do. You know, like uh, they would say, now you shouldn't be doing this and you shouldn't be doing that. And then I would point and say, well, how come he's doing it? How come Father Joe's doing it? Don't you talk about Father Joe like that, you know. So my aunt was having an affair with a family doctor, mind you, and he was married. So I'd always say, why are the doctor and auntie going in their bedroom for two hours? You know, shut up, you know. So, you know, I would always get, see, you know, if you'd study family systems, I was a scapegoat of the family. I was the one that said, you know, and they say the scapegoats of the family are the most honest ones in the family. Because there's all this dysfunction going on, all this shit. They're telling you, you shouldn't do, don't do as I say, not as I do. And so you're pointing to this elephant in the living room saying, hey, there's an elephant in the living room. Anybody see it? You mention that again, I'm going to beat the shit out of you. Okay? Well, the elephant just took a big dump in the living room. I like that one. You know. And uh, I was one of those people, so I was getting very frustrated. Okay? I was always told I couldn't do, I couldn't do, I couldn't do. I was very religious. I was very religious. I leaned towards wanting to learn about religion and spirituality. I was very artistic. I was very musical. Those were my three main gifts in my life, was music, art, religion. And uh, yet I was always told I couldn't be this. I couldn't be that. No, that's not a good job. You'll never get it. You can never do that and make money. you got to do this, you know. Besides, you're a girl. Just find a good man. Settle down. Make pasta. Have some kids, you know. So, uh, you know, my life seemed very limited, and it was very frustrating. But I had hope. 
Because I started watching Walt Disney when I was a kid, and I started remembering Cinderella and Snow White. And all of these women used to scrub floors. They had it bad, you know. I mean, wicked stepmothers putting curses on them and doing all this shit. And uh, yet, out of all this turmoil and, and frustration, you know, a prince would come along, you know. Like Sleeping Beauty, you know, some... Some some somebody cast a spell on the whole kingdom. Everybody fell asleep for a hundred years. She's laying up there in her castle, and some prince comes along, smells her, you know, sniffing his way in, and uh, takes his sword and cuts down all this stuff and goes into this castle and jumps on her and gives her a big kiss and Lord knows what else, and wakes her up, wakes the whole kingdom up. You know, I wanted something like that. I want someone to come along and wake me up like that. You know, I dare you, you know. And uh, so I thought, well, there's got to be a prince out there somewhere. Okay, and that's how I'm going to get out of this hellhole I'm in. And I won't have to listen to these priests. I won't have to listen to these nuns. They were always telling my parents, you got to come in. Joanna is, is constantly asking questions she shouldn't be asking. You know, well, when they're teaching you something and you have questions, you should ask. Finding out today that it's the best thing in the world is always question authority. You know, look at the mess we're in now because we haven't, you know. But anyway, so uh, I went ahead and started praying about Prince Charming, hoping that the prince would come someday. And about, all along about 1963, I'd say, I was walking down Bulldog Boulevard at San Jose High School, and the prince came. I mean, he was cute. He had this long, slick black black hair and a waterfall. He had one of them uh, T-shirts that was rolled up like this with a pack of cigarettes. You know, he was riding in a lowered mercury, yellow with a black top. It had these big flames on the side. It said, Teen Hell. You know what I mean? And I went, that's him. And uh, and so uh, uh, it turned out that, uh, you know, we got together and we started doing our thing, I ended up getting pregnant with my first son and getting married at the age of 16. Of course, my Prince Charming turned very shortly after that into a frog. They never tell you that. They always tell you that the princess comes along and kisses the frog and he turns into a prince, but it doesn't work the other way. If he seems like a prince, he's usually a frog. Get yourself a frog, and every once in a while he'll turn into a prince. That, that I learned. I got a frog now, and he's great. I've been with him 11 years. And he's, a, and he's a beautiful prince. I mean, he shines through all the time. But, you know, if I think I'm getting the prince wrong, but if I go, oh, what a cute little frog. Okay, I, I can love you. It's okay. Okay. So uh, as it stood, I, I got married very young, 16. I had two sons by the time I was 19. I had my first drink at the age, well, I actually had my first sips of alcohol when I was a kid because my family served wine at the table, pasta. And like I say, I, I would drink, uh, I would drink uh, wine with my family. My cousin Richard would drink the wine. Most of my cousins didn't want to drink theirs, so we'd always tell them, give it, get, you know, get theirs too. Me and Richard, Richard's still drinking, you know. Uh, and then I, and then, then long about, uh, after I had my kids, someone offered me a marijuana cigarette, and I took a puff of that, and I went, where can, where can I have more of this? This is good, you know. Uh, and then um, somebody offered me a Benzedrine one night, you know, because I was getting tired, and they wanted a 
stay up and, and uh, listen to music. And I was, you know, had my two children living out in a little apartment. They offered me one of these little Benzedrine, these little cross tops. And I took one of those and I went, whoa, where have you been all my life, you know? And uh, this, this girl next door said, oh, I have a bunch of those in the bag. She said, my... My 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 uh my brother-in-law he's a he's a connection you know and uh, he gets he he's a perfectionist so he doesn't like to he doesn't like to um uh, he likes to keep the pills in whole form anytime they're chipped or anything he puts them in a bag he won't sell them to his customers so I got a whole bag you know a lunch bag about this I'll give them to you I don't like them I'll get them for you later I said get them for me now you know <laughs> so uh, I got those. Then I got turned on to some acid, LSD-25, very popular in those days on sugar cubes, you know. And uh, so you might say I was a prodigy of the 60s, you know. And uh, and then I had an enterprising mind, so, you know, uh, uh, the more I would think about this, the more I wanted, then I thought the more I'd get, the more I could sell, and then I could keep my supply going. And that's how I'd end up in jails and institutions, you know, because I'd I, I, I get enterprising. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, that joke, they couldn't take a joke. I'd have to stay in there. And uh, I met the heroin connection in there. You meet a lot of interesting people in there. So that's how my life went, really, it did. And uh, the disease of alcoholism and addiction, just like any of these diseases, are progressive, chronic, and fatal. And, uh, you know, I'm no exception. It kept working like that for me, even though I decided to change my life in 72 after I got out of an institution. I did it the other way around. I did institutions all that first. Then I went out and chased money, property, and prestige. Bought me a home, bought me a new car. Appeared to be doing real well in the world. Then I took a drink with the realtors. (laughs) And down I went. So here I was on Saturday Night Live, February 1983. And I saw those steps up on the wall, and I saw that word spiritual awakening. And I liked that because I had always been looking for something spiritual. I knew I had always been looking for something spiritual. I left the Catholic Church at 16 years old because they told me I was going to go to hell for marrying outside the church, and I told them to go jump, you know. And I never went back. Glad I didn't. Don't want to go back. Um and then I began a pursuit of spiritual things. I think I've probably gone through every philosophy and religion I can think of. Joined the Rosicrucians, became a meditator with the Maharishi in 73. You know, and I just continued spiritually searching through all kinds of things. Far Eastern religions, American religions, uh, you know, philosophies of every type. Uh, I became a tarot reader when I was 18. I got into astrology and the psychic sciences. I did all that stuff because I was searching. And in the process of the search, I began to unfold, you know, things began to unfold for me in some ways. You know, I began to realize that there is some inner wisdom within us here. And even though people would tell me, oh, you shouldn't be doing those things, I'd say, well, you know, I learned early on in life that people told me I shouldn't be doing things that they were doing, and I didn't trust people, and I didn't have a lot of faith in people, and I learned early on that you can't believe people. You know, now I like drinking and using because it would change and alter my consciousness. That's why I drank and used. I like alcohol and I like drugs because it would alter my consciousness. It would make the world a magical place for me. When I was sober, I was restless, irritable, and discontent. You know, and when I would drink, 
everything would just light up. And it would be different. And I'd feel good. I'd feel like myself. I'd even feel spiritual. I'd even feel spiritual. And I know why that happens today. But I won't get into it at the podium right now. But I know why that happens today. Why we feel spiritual when we drink and use. And it has to do with the physiology. But I did feel good. You know, people used to bug me. You know, I never much liked people very much. And, uh, you know, I was telling this yesterday. I used to have this neighbor, big, kind of a heavy set lady with a moo-moo on. She'd wear these moo-moos all the time. She'd have these little pink rollers in her head, you know, that, you know, these women that roll their head up and stuff. She'd come and talk to me about her, she'd come and talk to me about her husband and her kids and, oh yes, and my husband and my kids. And, you know, it's just the most boring conversation I ever heard. You know, every time I'd show up my driveway and she's come at me, I'd try to go around the side and get away from her, you know. Talk about all this boring crap, you know. I got people to see places go, things to do. And uh, she, you know, but I could go in the house and smoke a joint, take a geese, take a drink, take a couple drinks, go back out there, and this lady become the most fascinating individual I ever met. Man, she'd be tweaking like a cartoon, you know, and I'd be tripping on her. Wow. Oh, your husband did that? Wow. You know, that's why I used and drank, because it did something for me. It always did something for me. I was always looking for that, looking for that. And I remember in a spiritual class I was taking through the years, I had a mentor tell me, you know that feeling you get when you get loaded? I say, yeah. She said, you got to find that without getting loaded. I said, yeah, I do. How do I do that? you got to find it. You're cheating, she used to tell me. You're cheating. So when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous and saw the word spiritual awakening, I said, you know what? Maybe this program does have something here. And at the time that I came into Saturday Night Live, I wasn't looking for anything anymore. I had resigned, see. I had resigned from life. I had decided that I did not want any more to do with it because I didn't have any more options left. Everything seemed like an exercise in futility to me. I had the money. I had had good lovers. I had had children. I did the marriage thing. You know, I, I did all kinds of things that I thought would do it, and they didn't do it. So I was ready when I got to Saturday Night Live in 1983. I was ready to see what this thing had to offer. And you know what? I, I really believe that Saturday Night Live group, there was a lot of controversy about this group, group a long time ago. You know, people say, don't go to that group. That's not a real AA, you know. Well, if you want real AA, go to real AA, you know, somewhere else. Don't screw up this, this fellowship. And what I mean by that is this is Alcoholics Anonymous here. But one of the things that was special about this group is this group started by a bunch of youngsters that were really wanting to bring their spouses, their codependent spouses with them to meetings. They, they, they wanted everybody to be able to share. Um, and so when I walked into this meeting, there were not only alcoholic sharing, but there was People sharing about drugs, using other drugs. And people in AA tell you, these, some of these AA meetings, hey, don't talk about drugs. What the hell do you think alcohol is? It's a depressant drug. Like Valium. 
Second all. You know, and I tell those old timers, well, if you don't want to talk about drugs, must mean you're still taking them, huh? <laughs> you go in the doctor flipping those little second alls in at night, go to sleep. But see, for a person like me, because I just didn't use one thing, because I used many things to alter my consciousness and got very sick, I needed a group like this. I believe spirit created a group like this for spirit like me and for spirits like you. Because people were talking about drugs. I had a guy come up to me the first day of a meeting here, Jim G. Because I got up and introduced myself as an addict. I didn't know about alcoholism yet. But I had been drinking all my life. And I had the disease of alcoholism. But I didn't know about that. And this man came up to me and he says, you know what, Joanna, I'm a junkie too. And I went, all right, you know. And he made that connection. And he said, hey, us junkies can't use alcohol either. And my stomach dropped. Because that was my ace in the hole. You know what I mean? You know, Narcotics Anonymous is a little bit more uh, evolved. I hate to say it, really. But uh, at least they acknowledge that alcohol is a drug. They tell you in NA, if you think you're going to skid through that one, they go, oh, no, alcohol's a drug. You can't drink here either, you know. Shit. You know. So I did, truly, I did what I was supposed to do here. Uh, you know that I came and started coming to meetings every day because uh, I didn't have anything else to do in my life. I came with Sheila every day. I started coming to noon meetings. I started coming to 6 o'clock meetings, 8 o'clock meetings. And in those days, in room 47, they had this little Al-Anon room next door. And I felt like getting my sleeping bag and putting it in there, you know, because I wanted to live here. I remember a lot of people here when I got here and a lot of people that came. You know, like Bud and uh, Marty, and I've seen a lot of the people come in. They were a mess, too. Believe me, they were. John and Cindy, oh, God. You know. <clears throat> but you know what? Uh, this is a special fellowship, Saturday Night Live. And I hope it never changes. Sometimes I hear the traditionals come in, you know, they're like the traditionals of the church, you know, <clears throat> like the Gestapo, you know. Uh, I hope they never muck that up here at Saturday Night Live because you know what? This is one of the leading contributors to uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, this group. So it must mean there's a need for a group like this. Because once this group got started, it started with a Saturday night meeting, and before you know it, they start having meetings every day. Before you know it, two meetings a day, three meetings a day, four meetings a day. So it says something about this group. And I'm going to tell you, I owe my life to Saturday Night Live. I do. Because it was the people here that embraced me and said, no, no, you don't need to go anywhere. Other people and other groups would tell me, don't talk about drugs here. You know, I'd say, well, I'll see you later. You know, I can't relate to you. You know. And in this group, I didn't get any of that. I got embraced for who I was. And I started getting told about the disease of alcoholism by the old timers. And I start learning about my disease and that I had the phenomenon of craving every time I stuck a drink in my body. And that I had an obsession of the mind that told me, that drove me crazy when I didn't drink. 
and convince me that it would be okay to pick up a drink. And once I pick up the drink, then I'd get craving again, and I'd go off on some tangent, and I couldn't tell you how long I'd be out there drinking. And then I'd stop drinking, and then I couldn't stop from thinking about drinking. So I'd pick up another drink, convinced that it wouldn't hurt me. And they told me, you see this pattern? You need to stop this. You know, you're powerless over alcohol. So I realized that not only did I have to quit using the heroin and the cocaine and the LSD and smoking the goddamn Pocololo and dropping little Valiums and, you know, sleeping pills at night, but I had to stop drinking. That was bad news. I had to stop it all. And I sat here in these rooms, and then the emotions started coming up. Boy, I was ready to rip people's faces off, you know? I thought, why are you so angry? Well, I had been pushing this rage down ever since Catholic school. <laughs> you know? And it was there, man, and I was hot. And they told me, you know what? You have to do these steps. You have to do these steps to get relief. And I did. I did the steps, and 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 I still do the steps. And I got almost 19 years around here doing the steps. And I continue doing the steps. Because those steps up there are the steps to freedom. Those steps up there will release you of every false belief and every bullshit trip you've ever been on. And free you up to become what you've always been all along. A visible spirit. Divine, sacred, and beautiful. Capable, lovable. See, I came to see that there wasn't any God up there either here. And I never had a problem with the word God. Never. Because I had been a spiritual seeker, like I say, so I didn't have a problem with that word. You know, and like I say, I'd gone through every religion and philosophy, so... I didn't have a problem with that. I always knew there was a power greater than myself. If, if someone said, oh, I don't know, I'm stuck on step two, and uh, I don't know if there's a power greater than myself, I said, what, is it? what are you, stupid? <laughs> I mean, you know, look out at the, you know, do you make the sun come up? <laughs> you know, can you make a tree grow? Let's see. You, what do you do, put the stars out in the universe? You are self-centered, you know. So I never had a problem with a higher power, you see. Because because I always knew there was a power greater than myself. Okay? But and 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 you know, but I, I just kept doing the these steps, see. I kept and, and I stayed around here, I came to meetings every day, and I came for thirty days and all of a sudden I'm getting thirty day chip. I go, Wow, this is interesting. How did I do this? I mean, I wasn't really trying. I was, it kind of blew my mind to get a 30-day chip. I didn't take a Valium. Let me see. Did I? Did I sneak one? No, I didn't. You know, I'm really clean. You know? And then when I hit a year, that was really a mind blower. You know? And I realized that the reason I was doing it was because I was coming to meetings and being with people like you. I wasn't doing anything special except just coming to meetings, being with people like you. And then it dawned on me after some time, and still dawns on me, that you know what? What we're doing is we're getting together in a tribal system. The AA is like the old tribal systems of old, communities of old. And Carl Jung talked about this, the great doctor that had connection with Bill Wilson before the big book was written. 
Carl Jung was part of this whole evolvement of a spiritual program that we have. And Carl Jung said, you know, these alcoholic people are bordering on the psychic plane of existence. Most of the ones I meet are very sensitive people. They can't handle the world. That's me. You know? And you know what? Um, I realized that what AA has done is, you know, Bill and Bob started, they, they came on to something when they realized that, you know what? It's one alcoholic helping another. It's one addict helping another. It's one codependent helping another. It's like when I came here, I found a group of kindred spirits that understood me. You know, and I didn't think they did at first, you know. I was a little scared. Like, how's this group of weirdos going to help me? You know. You know what I mean? I took my auntie here when I got my first year medallion because, see, I started coming to meetings while living with my auntie, and after a while my auntie didn't want me to leave. I said, is it okay if I stay one more week? Well, when are you going? Uh, just one more week. I'm going to these meetings. Pretty soon it was a week, then a month, then two months, and three months. And pretty soon she started seeing the change in me. And she started saying, you know what, you could hang around a little while more. Yeah. And then my auntie finally said, why don't you just stay? And then when I got my year medallion, I said, hey, auntie, I'm going to get my year chip. Do you want to come to the meeting with me? She goes, okay. She's a little 76-year-old, you know, come in, little Italian thing, you know. Comes into the room, looks just about like this. She looks at it, and she goes, oh, my God. I said, what's the matter, Auntie? She goes, this is the biggest group of weirdos i ever seen, you know. Everybody's hugging her and kissing her and stuff, you know. You know that that lady, that lady invited me to stay in her home. I ended up staying there for 15 years. She never wanted any of my friends around, but you know what? After a little while, she kept, I'd say, you know, she'd go, where are you going? I'd go, i got to go across the street to Golden West because i got to meet one of these alcoholics or addicts. I'm working with them. I have to work with these people to stay sober and clean. Okay, go ahead, go ahead, you know. Do you get paid for this? i go, no. You should get paid for this, you know. Shit, you're all, that's all you're ever doing is you're not bringing any money in, you know. Uh, so I'm going, and pretty soon she say, well, you can invite him over here if you want. So I start, began to start sponsoring. I started sponsoring early on. I thought it was because I was so wise. Actually, it was because Spirit was sending me all these people so that, 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 that they keep me out of trouble, you know. And because I needed to remember who I was. See, sponsorship keeps us clean and sober. Okay, but sponsorship does something much deeper. When one alcoholic or one addict talks to another, okay, what we're doing is mirroring our souls for each other. And when I got here to Alcoholics Anonymous, I didn't know myself very well because I had a lot of years that were blacked out. And I couldn't remember a lot of things. And I would work with another woman and she'd start sharing and I'd remember. I remember who I was. And she'd bring up that for me. And I began to realize that all these women that were coming to me were mirroring me. And through that, because I didn't love myself very much, you know, because we go out there and do some strange things when we're using and drinking. And you know what? We think we were shamed in the beginning when we were kids. Stick around and start drinking and using and you see how disgraced you get, you know. We start hating ourselves for the things we do drinking and using. 
So I was pretty self-loathing when I got here, pretty indifferent. And I had to learn to love you first. You know, people say, oh, you can't love anybody until you love yourself. Well, bullshit. You know? And that's why we need each other, because we are reflections of one another. When we stand up here and share our experience, strength, and hope with one another, we're sharing our souls with one another. And when we do that, we help each other remember. And when we remember, we can start having compassion. We could forgive. Because I used to hear people up here talking and the women that I work with giving me their fifth steps, trusting me to hear what they had to say in confidentiality. And I would hear it and I'd cry and I'd say, oh my God, I did that too. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And I'd say, it's okay. And I'd embrace them and I'd love them. And then I realized I'm loving me. I'm embracing them and I'm learning to love me. Because if it's okay if you do it, it's okay if I do it. If it's okay that you did this and we can all laugh about it, it must be okay that I did this. And I could go ahead and forgive myself. I had a hard time over my children. Because I was one of those mothers that was neglectful. You can't be a good mother and, and use and drink for years and years and go to institutions. You know, And I, and I had a lot of pain around that. But through the years, in, in this fellowship and in this program, I learned to love myself and forgive myself. I realized that I did do the best I could do under the circumstances. And I'm still embracing myself. I continued for years in Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous. I started going to ACA when I had three years of recovery. I started going to Al-Anon. As I began, as, as I, as I, uh, moved through the years. And now I go to a lot of CODA meetings as well. Because I realize that codependency is the underlying root of all these addictions. Codependency is a disease that deteriorates the soul. And I learned that from the moment I was born, I started having soul fragmentation. You know why? Because I kept giving up pieces of myself. I kept being asked to do things I didn't want to do. Behaving in ways that weren't me. And you know what? Little by little by little to please somebody because I was fearful or whatever the reasons, I started giving myself away. And my soul became fragmented and lost. And when that alcohol came along and those drugs came along, I went, <sighs> because it buffered all that. And it made it okay for a while. When I came here, I learned about these steps and I learned about recovery. And I knew that I had to keep working steps and I had to keep working with others. And that's what I've done. In about three years in my recovery, I started getting these overwhelming feelings to go back to nature. Now, nature had always been something for me that I loved even as a child because even when things were bad in our house, I'd go sit outside, go down to the creek, always sit under the trees. I knew there was fairies and all kinds of wonderful things out there. And I'd always sit out in nature and I'd always feel at peace and I'd always feel at one with nature. And it was an enchanted world I loved. And uh, as a matter of fact, when I'd hear my mother's voice, I'd go, shit, you know, she'd just break the spell, you know. Come make your bed, you know. 
So, uh, about three years into recovery, I was coming to Faith Leader meetings, Saturday Night Live. I got this overwhelming urge to put my feet in the earth again, to take off my shoes. I felt like I wanted to eat the earth almost. It was weird. And I thought, shit, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm working. I can't go up in the mountain very much. And, and my little girl, Davina, you know, she, I used to take her to the beach every Thursday. She started turning me on to all these crystals. Mama, look at these are magic. These are magic. Okay, let's get them, you know. And uh, one day uh, somebody told me, hey, there's this little park over here in Campbell you can go to. They've got a creek there. So I started going to this park. Meantime, you know, I'm still working steps. I'm still working with others and stuff. And uh, I start going to this park, and I start walking. And one day I'm out there just walking along, and it's beautiful. And and by now I got a little job. I'm working in recovery, you know. And uh, I'm, I'm out there in the morning because I don't have to start work till 4 in the afternoon. I'm out there in the morning walking along this path. Nature is just beautiful. I hear the birds singing. I feel like just dancing. Walking along out there, I'm looking at nature. I'm going, God, this is so beautiful. I'm so grateful I get a chance to do this, you know. And all of a sudden, I hear this voice say, well, Joanna, you were made in my image and likeness. And the first thing out of my mouth was, Mother, is that you? And for the first time in my life, I recognized the earth goddess, the mother of all life, Mother Earth, the spirit of nature. And she was telling me I was made in her image. And all of a sudden, I was just stunned, in, just shocked in place for a minute. And I began to weep. And all of a sudden, I felt like this whole spiritual awakening took place. This epiphany, if you will. And every religious ideology I had ever learned went, whoosh. No more God as you understand Him. And all of a sudden, I walked down to my favorite little tree by this creek, and I sat down underneath this tree, and I start crying. I said, oh, my God, Mother, I forgot you. Because it had seemed like for lifetimes I had been sleeping, hypnotized, like Sleeping Beauty. Hypnotized for eons. I have forgotten the ancient mother of all of us, the earth, the goddess. And I wept, and I wept, and I said, I'm so sorry, I forgot you. And I could hear her laughter through nature, going, the joke's on you, you know. And I'll never forget that day, and I knew at that time that that was marking a change in my life. That I would no longer, and what I felt was sacred as a woman. Because remember... I came into a system where there was a lot of patriarchal authority. And everything I ever wanted to do in my life, I was told I couldn't do because I was a girl. And, you know, when you're told that you can't do something because you're a particular sex, it's like men being told they can't cry, you know. It's like, wait a minute. You know, we, we start getting into these prisons within ourselves. And we're not allowed to be who we are anymore. And that's what I mean by fragmentation of the soul. You know, it's a, it's a beautiful thing to watch a man cry when he comes in here to recovery. I go, God, I bet you haven't done that in a long time, you know. And if you did, shape up right away. Don't let anybody see this, you know. 
And so, um, you know, I, I sat there under that tree that day. This was in the springtime of 1985. And um, I said, oh, my goodness. I said, you know what? Uh, the goddess has spoken to me. And I felt sacred as a woman because I felt like I was made in her image and likeness since I brought life into the world like the Mother Earth did, like the Mother Goddess does. You know, I, I, I don't know how we can believe in myths like, uh, you know, uh, that we all came from a rib. I mean, I think about this, you know. We don't come from ribs. You know where we come from. You know how you got here. You know, a woman brought you into the world. And I had this realization that because the feminine brings all life into form, into time and space, that I was sacred. And you know what? That was a freedom for me. Because for the first time in my life, I felt free. I felt good. I felt whole again. Because I had been told so many other things to the contrary. So from that day forward, I didn't talk about the goddess for a long time in recovery. I didn't talk about the goddess because everybody was talking about God as you understand them. They need to take that out, actually. It's just a, you know, it's a phraseology. It's a, it's a metaphor is what it is. Just like the goddess is a metaphor. But the same is, is that, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous shouldn't re- represent any religion. It says right in our big book that we have no religious affiliation, yet we're using metaphors that point to particular religions. And through the years working in recovery field, I realized that we leave a lot of people out of these fellowships because of it. A lot of people will not come here if we're using certain metaphors because it, do, it doesn't fit for them. So we ought to rethink that sometime. Maybe just use the word higher power like Bill wanted to do in the first place. I think it would, would bring a lot of more people into recovery. But anyway, so, you know, uh, I began to embrace myself as a woman, and shortly after that I started learning about the goddess religions, and I joined the ministry. So I became a minister, in, um, and I began to form a circle called the Sacred Circle of Women, who is uh, 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 recovering women. And I've been doing the same thing, going to meetings, sharing, working steps, sharing my experience, strength, and hope, sponsoring people only embracing women and goddess traditions now, and also, um, you know, doing my thing in the world uh, as a minister. And you know what? I learned that all of those things I wanted to be as a little girl have come true for me now that I'm in recovery. I do a lot of singing and drumming. All my musical abilities are coming out in circle, you know. I do a lot of writing. I do a lot of artistic work. I'm led to, uh, you know, doing religious rites and rituals and stuff, and it's so fun. And, uh, you know, so all of those things I wanted to be as a little girl. Hey, I'm holding the chalice up. I'm holding the chalice up now, you know. And it's neat, and, and I feel good because it's me. It's who I've always been. It's like this program brought me back to me. This program can bring you back to you. Whatever you are, whoever you are, whatever your spirit is, this program will uncover it, bring us back to wholeness again. You know, and I remember a long time ago in the fellowship, this little girl uh, came up to speak, and she said she always felt so plain and so so ugly. She used to wear this little brown dress, and she had red hair and freckles. And she said what Alcoholics Anonymous did and this program did was get her to love that little brown, uh, red-haired girl with freckles in the brown dress. 
The little red-headed girl with freckles in the brown dress became the most beautiful thing she ever saw. You know, I became the most beautiful thing I ever saw. Matter of fact, I think I'm the most interesting individual I've ever met. And I enjoy spending company with myself. I also want to share with you that my auntie, the one that kept asking me to stay, after 15 years, um, after 11 years of my recovery, one day I walked in her house and she said, Joanna, see, remember, I told you I resigned in my life, October the 4th, 1982, and I never, and I never took up that resignation. I'm still resigned. See, what I do is I turn my will and my life over every day to a power greater than myself, to the mother goddess, to nature. I realize that I'm a part of it all, that nothing is estranged from me, that spirit is right here, whole and complete, shining through these eyes, shining through your eyes. And I realize that, you know what, this is all the kind of work I ever want to do in my life, is just awaken, you know, love myself and love others and be of service. You don't make too much money doing that. Like my aunt says, when are you going to make some money doing this, you know? But you know what? We get taken care of. And I walked into my auntie's house. I had 11 years of recovery. She says, you know, I've been thinking about it, and I want to give you my house. I said, what? She goes, I want to give you my house. This little auntie had worked all of her life to pay for this little house on Hamilton Avenue. A little two-bedroom, one bath, just a little teeny thing. It was bought and paid for. But with this inflation in Silicon Valley, it, it ended up being a pretty penny. And this woman gave me her home because she told me, I never want you to worry about having a roof over your head again so you can continue doing your circles and working with your women. And you know what? It, that bought me uh, the what you would call earthly security because I have a roof over my head today and it gives me that freedom to be able to keep being a part of you guys doing the work I want to do in the world. You know, my family and I are healing. Davina's now in recovery. I want to thank you guys for embracing her and having her here. I told her, I said, she goes, you know, your spirit's alive in Saturday Night Live. I said, yeah, but now you're taking over. And look out, she's got a big mouth too, you know. <laughs> my auntie died at 15 years. Uh, my, aunt, my auntie died in 1997. I was just getting ready to move to Carson City. And that woman had provided me, and on her deathbed, I thanked her. And she felt bad because I had to wipe her behind and everything, take care of her until she took her last breath. And I, and every time I wiped her and I took care of her and I combed her hair and I washed her face as she was dying, I remember every meal she put in front of me while I was sick. I remember when she took me in when nobody would give me a prayer. I remember her taking a chance on me. And you know, in the process of that, in the process of your love and your grace and this fellowship and our tribe here, do you know that this started rubbing off on my auntie too? And my auntie healed a lot from having you moving in and out of her house all the time with 12-step work. My aunt died a happy woman because she became also a servant to this fellowship. You know, she was a lonely old woman when I walked in that place. And at the end of her life, she had given much for the recovery of women. So I, I'm very grateful. I have a mate in my life now for 11 years. Like I say, he's a frog. But man, every once in a while, more than not, I see this beautiful print shining through, man. 
And you know what? I don't expect nothing and I get everything. I don't know what else to say. Oh, I'm happy. I'm content. And, I, and I'm very thankful to Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, and all of the programs that I participate in. Um, I'm blessed. And as I close, I've gone a little over time here. I have a, he said, he asked me today, he goes, could you talk for an hour, Joanna? I go, can I talk for an hour? He must be new, I thought, you know. I asked him, how much time do you have? He goes, nine years. And I go, oh, okay, you know. I wrote a poem for you all. And this kind of sums it up. I'm grateful. I've lived through many things in recovery as well. Many ups and downs. But I've done it with you. I had cancer seven years ago. Had to have my breast removed, see? And you know what? I did exactly what you told me to do when I came in here for alcoholism and addiction. You said I had to embrace my alcoholism if I wanted to get well. I embraced my cancer. I said, okay, you showed up to give me a message. You're reflecting an unspiritual condition. Let's get on with it. What do I need to do to heal? It's been seven years. Just had my physical examination. Clean as a whistle. So believe me, whatever happens, divorces, whatever, because life is changeable. The wheel turns. We wax and wane. Sometimes things build. Sometimes things fall apart. That's the way nature is. But you know what? We can do it. You know, together. We can stay clean and sober together. We can enjoy this beautiful life together. And I know that. So thank you for my recovery Saturday Night Live. I appreciate it. I wrote this poem that says, uh, and you know, I got a couple copies too. Somebody asked me about them, so I did bring a couple copies. <clears throat> but th I'll say this in closing. Some say that I'm a miracle. To that I would agree. For I was born a spirit being, happy, joyous, and free. But sadly, I was hypnotized, shamed and blamed and criticized, till false beliefs and twisted lies were all I came to recognize. You see, I wanted truth and love's embrace, but self-destruction took its place. In rage and fear, well, I sought relief. That led to sickness and loss and grief. Yes, I became my enemy, imprisoned with disharmony. But through the pain and deep despair, I cried for help and I said a prayer. Twas in these rooms I came to find hope and strength and peace of mind. The steps became my destiny, releasing me from misery. And from the ashes, yes, I did rise to find a goddess in disguise. And as the power of spirit stays, I've come to honor nature's ways. Now laws of love I do abide with a mate and family by my side, sharing my recovery with kindred souls like you and me. Yes, I'd say I'm a miracle with many blessings be. And at last, I am that spirit being. Happy, joyous, and free. Many blessings.
Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.